All right, good morning, Redeemer Church. Well, as Glenn said, my name is Ben Mowell. I'm here from Cedar Falls with my lovely wife, Sarah, over here. Um, so if you don't know me, I am a lay pastor uh, up there. That means I work full-time. Um, this is a calling that I have from the church to serve in an additional capacity. Uh, before we get started, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, I just thank you for these people who are gathered to glorify your name, to worship you together, to hear your word preached, to be faithful to the commands that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for the mothers that are with us. We thank you for the gift and blessing that they are to us. And Lord, lastly, I ask that you would use this time, you would use this scripture, use these words to bless and build up your church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So today is Mother's Day, and in the church where I grew up, um, that would have meant some traditions, like a sermon that was dedicated to mothers, or handing out corsages. For me, holding the child dedications to celebrate the day feels like a far more meaningful symbol. However, since the sermon is not going to be dedicated to mothers, I think it's appropriate to take a moment to honor the women who brought us into the world. Women who literally risked their lives to give us life, who gave up food, sleep, peace, and quiet, dignity, and personal achievements so that we would flourish. This is certainly a vision of God's heart toward us. And while we celebrated and will celebrate today with those who were fruitful and multiplied, we also mourn with those who have had those hopes dashed. There are undoubtedly women in this room who have conceived children that they were never able to meet, and women who have longed for children for years and yet remained barren, women who lament on Mother's Day because of lack or loss. Even those who have other children never forget that scar. So maybe, like Hannah, the absence of children has left you deeply distressed and weeping bitterly before the Lord. If you are one of these women, I want to explicitly dispel two lies that you may be telling yourself. Number one, that God doesn't really care about you. And number two, that you are less valuable because you haven't had children. No matter how real those thoughts may feel, they are not true. You are a beloved daughter of the living God made in his image, formed by his hands, and he weeps with you in your suffering and loss. When a friend recently shared about her miscarriage, I told her that I was reminded of the book of Job. When Job's fr friends heard of his misfortune and misery, they came and sat in silence in the ashes with him for seven days. So we, as your brothers and sisters, as your family, may not have words that offer much encouragement, but we can at least sit with you in the ashes, if you'll let us. And that grief doesn't go away immediately. It can take a long time to process, and it's okay to be hurting and to still want to talk about that weeks, months, or even years later. My prayer for you is that someday you too will sing with Hannah and the psalmist, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. So turning now to the topic of today's sermon, in the interest of full disclosure and setting expectations, we'll be examining a number of parallel texts today. 
So if you're someone who prefers to read along, be ready. There will also be many things which are probably review for many of you. This is intentional for two reasons. Because there are things we need to know to understand the text. And for those who already know it, we need continuous reminders. Lastly, there's going to be an interactive component. I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but I'll explain once we get to that point. So let's begin by understanding how this sermon today fits into the context of our series in Hebrews called Out of the Shadows. So what does that mean? The author of Hebrews has been building a case, as we've explored the book, for why we ought to put our faith in Christ, using the following arguments. Starting in chapter 1, that Jesus is the exact imprint of God, that he's greater than the angels, that he's been given authority over all things, that Jesus is greater than the great prophet Moses, that Jesus gives us confidence and rest, that Jesus is our heavenly high priest, that Jesus is eternal, that he's our forerunner making a way to God, that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priest Melchizedek, and that Jesus is greater than the Old Covenant, the law. So to sum up all that's happened previously, everything we can see and hear and touch is only a shadow which points to the ultimate reality of the universe. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God, is seated at the right hand of the Father and ruling over all things. That's the shadow of our reality. That's what it points to. But now in this passage in chapter 9, we're going to see the crux of the whole book of Hebrews. Here, the author pivots from who Jesus is to what he has done for us by securing our redemption, the redemption of our souls from our sins. And specifically, the author does this by comparing and contrasting Jesus to the mosaic traditions of the tabernacle, priests, and sacrifices. And not only is this passage the focal point of the whole book of Hebrews, But as we will see today, it is actually summarizing the thread of all of Scripture, all of time, and all creation. So if that sounds like a lot of material to cover in one sermon, it is. Let's dive in. From the beginning of human history, God has made provisions for himself to dwell with us. If you grew up in the church like me, it can be easy to gloss over this fact and think that God established his dwelling place with the Israelites through the tabernacle with Moses. In reality, it began with Eden, when we first see the symbolism of God's throne room, his dwelling place on earth. So let's look together at that text. If you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. So starting in verse 8, And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We'll stop there. So what are the details we can glean from this passage that identify Eden as God's first dwelling place on earth? Well, in verses 10 through 14, we see that Eden was separated from the rest of the earth by four rivers. The structure of this geography illustrates that where God's presence is, his dwelling place is set apart. It's special. It's the very definition of holy. Verse 9 tells us that the tree of life stood at the center, which symbolizes God's power as the creator and authority to give life. We also see that God placed man in the garden to work it and keep it. So if we look into this a little bit more, God created mankind specifically to dwell with him in his presence. In fact, the first thing God did with his newly created humans was to put them in the garden he just planted so that they could experience his presence. We also see that he deputized mankind as an overseer of all creation, giving him both a purpose and tasks, including telling him to be fruitful and multiply. So if we look at that, what more could we possibly want? God created us, provided a lush garden full of food in his very presence. And he gave us a role as his caretaker. If only we had been satisfied with that, the totality of scripture would be Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And the last verse would read, and they lived happily ever after. But the biggest tragedy of all of scripture is that in Genesis 3, we immediately see human nature revealed. We are not so easily satisfied. Despite having every need met and dwelling in the presence of the Most High God, creator and sustainer of life, we wanted more. We wanted to be like him. We couldn't accept a hierarchy and demanded equality. In this rebellion against his plan, sin entered the equation of how we relate to God. In addition to all the curses it inflicted on the world and on our bodies, it also introduced consequences for approaching God's dwelling place in a sinful state. So let's look at Genesis 3, verses 21 through 24. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to take, excuse me, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So let's look at this passage, and we can see that there's a few new elements that explain how the interaction with God has changed, how the dynamic of humans' presence in God's dwelling place has changed as a result of sin. So the first is in verse 21. Here we see implicitly the first sacrifice, when God provided replacements for the flimsy fig leaf coverings that Adam and Eve were wearing. Their disobedience cost the life of an animal. In verse 23, 
we learn that we could no longer directly dwell in God's presence because of our sinful, rebellious hearts. God had always separated his dwelling place from the rest of the earth, but now we found ourselves on the wrong side of that dividing line. Likewise, verse 24 reveals that God placed armed cherubim to guard the way to his dwelling place. Not only do these fearsome creatures serve as a boundary marker, but their weapons highlight that an unauthorized entrance into the throne room of the living God is a hazard to our health. A death sentence, actually. And these guards are an act of mercy for our sake, because in our sinful estate, estate, exposed to God's full glory, his holiness and purity would cause our destruction. As Isaiah said when he unexpectedly found himself in the throne room of God, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And scripture elsewhere says our God is a consuming fire. Now, here we are, only three chapters into Genesis, and we've already uncovered the fundamental characteristics of God's dwelling place and how humanity approaches his presence. So if we were to keep reading, the symbolism of substitutionary blood sacrifice for sin is continued on full display as the rest of the book unfolds. I'll just summarize a few. In chapter 4, Abel offers the firstborn sheep of his flock. In chapter 8, Noah offers clean birds and animals after the flood cleansed the earth of its corruption. In chapter 12, God calls Abram to leave his homeland, who then builds an altar and sacrifices to God at Bethel. In chapter 13, Abram builds an altar at Hebron, and in chapter 15, he sacrifices many animals there. In a story that many of us remember, in chapter 22 of Genesis, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then ends up providing a substitutionary ram instead. In chapter 26, Isaac builds an altar to the Lord at Beersheba. And in chapter 28, Jacob falls asleep on a rock. He dreams of a stairway into heaven where he sees God standing. And when he wakes up, he sets up a stone pillar, pours oil on it, and he calls that place the house of God. With all these documented instances, clearly the practice of offering blood sacrifices to God to purify oneself in order to be in his presence, became a well-established thread connecting Adam to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Moses arrived to give the law to the people, the sacrificial rites and the specifications for the temple, it gave form and definition to how Israel would approach God. This ushered in the period of Mosaic law in the physical spaces called the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle and the temple were intended to serve as temporary symbols of the heavenly throne room. This is what the author in Hebrews is talking about. So to make an analogy, they're like having an embassy in a foreign country. That embassy represents the sovereign authority of the home country, but it is still within a different nation. If you walk in the door of a U.S. embassy anywhere in the world, you will have direct access to all the benefits afforded to a U.S. citizen but only because Washington, D.C. exists here as the seat of government. 
So the embassy is a shadow, a temporary symbol that points to the seat of government. So through the tabernacle and the temple later, again, we see all the hallmarks of God's presence in his earthly dwelling. If you want to read about that for yourself, you can find most of the details in Exodus chapters 25 through 29, 37 and 40, and 1 Kings 5 through 8. So we're not going to go there now. You're welcome to do that on your own time, but I'll summarize it. So as God described the specifications for the tabernacle and the temple, we see that his dwelling place is again set apart from the rest of the earth. Just as Eden was bounded by a river on each side, so the tabernacle courtyard was surrounded by curtains and the temple by walls. He also commanded Israel to fashion a lampstand to place in the holy place at the center of the tabernacle and the temple. And this was fashioned to look like a plant or a tree, like the tree of life. The decorations in the room also prominently featured pomegranates, hearkening back to the fruitful garden. We also see that God gave mankind a role in caring for his house. Just as God commissioned Adam to care for the garden, so he established Aaron and his sons to perform sacrifices and the Levites to perform other duties. God also no longer allows mankind to dwell in his presence due to their sinful hearts. Only one priest, once a year, could enter the holy place, and only after making atonement for himself and for Israel. If he had not properly cleansed himself or offered sacrifices, he would die. The priest had to sprinkle the blood of those sacrifices on the corners of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. This lid was called the mercy seat, as in the seat of power for receiving mercy, the place where God's presence would descend and offer mercy to sinners. Scripture also tells us that the lid of the ark was fashioned in the shape of two cherubim, just like the one set to guard the way back to Eden. The symbolism is here is so clear, reminding everyone that God's dwelling place has been removed to a place we cannot go. Eden is no longer on earth. As you can see, through all of human history up to that point, and especially for Israel, God desired to dwell with men. And the soul stain of sin demanded horrific complications for that to be possible. Nowhere was this more clear than in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, where God said to Israel, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That's some pretty familiar sounding language. <clears throat> so all of that brings us back to Hebrews 9. The author was writing to a group of people who knew all of these things. The rituals, the holidays, the buildings, the sacrifices and symbolism were all part of their native culture. When the author described a priest and holy places, the tent and the vessels, sacrifices, blood and purification, his audience had seen all of those things with their own eyes. This passage serves to outline how Jesus embodied all of that and fulfilled all of the requirements of the law for sin once and for all. 
we see this same message as we just heard from Leviticus in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So that same theme is carried through. Something we often talk about here at Redeemer is how Jesus fulfilled the threefold roles of prophet, priest, and king. However, in this passage, we see him described as both the priest and the sacrifice, the one providing the sacrificial blood and the one sprinkling God's throne room with it for atonement. Throughout this sermon series, we have talked at length about the aspect of Jesus' qualification as our high priest. In our previous series about the book of Isaiah, we talked repeatedly about his role as the suffering servant, which we could also call the sacrifice. So I want to summarize that role by reading through this familiar passage from Isaiah 53, starting in verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, we shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. These prophetic words spoken by Isaiah about Jesus spill over into Hebrews 9. Jesus presented himself to God as both the priest and the offering laying down his own life once as atonement for all. The suffering servant in Isaiah is the sacrificial lamb for all mankind in Hebrews 9. So since we aren't culturally Jewish, and none of us has ever seen the tabernacle, the temple, or witnessed an animal sacrifice, to my knowledge, it can be difficult for this message to resonate with us like it would have for the original audience of this letter. So for that reason, I'd like to briefly do something a little different than usual to drive the point home. All right, so close your eyes for a moment and imagine with me. I'll tell you when you can open them again. Imagine you are an Old Testament Jew who has come to the tabernacle to make a sin offering. In accordance with the law, you have brought an unblemished lamb with you as a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for your sin, as you have many times before. Your feet hurt as you are standing in line, waiting hours, among many others, with their own offerings. As you look out over the wall of the courtyard, you see the summit of Mount Sinai, 
and still feel the fear induced by the thunder, lightning, and earthquakes which heralded the giving of the law. Can you see that? Can you picture it in your mind? The smoke and smell of seared flesh coming from the altar sting your eyes and nose, snapping you back to reality. When you finally approach the priest, he smiles at you and says in the words that the patriarch Abraham told to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. With those words, the priest turns and sacrifices himself, laying down his own life as atonement on your behalf. As you recoil in shock and horror at this unthinkable act, you hear thunder again and feel the earth tremble beneath you. Before you even know what has happened, the curtain separating you from God's presence within is torn from top to bottom, and you find yourself staring at the revealed glory of God. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He has put an end to the endless parade of sacrificial lambs by climbing the hill to the cross and offering up his own life as a ransom for many. Revelation 8 tells us that there was silence in heaven for half an hour when the lamb opened the seventh seal. Can you imagine how heaven responded when the spirit of Jesus left his body at Calvary and as blood flowed from his wounds, he scooped some up and proceeded to walk through space and time, through a landscape littered with the heaped corpses of countless animals and rivers of their blood, which had only purchased temporary atonement. Can you imagine the hosts of heaven watching in utter silence as the lamb who was slain carried a bowl of his own blood into the presence of the Father as our priest and poured it out on the altar before the throne. When Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, he meant it. Not his life, but his task. He put an end forever to the sacrificial system, and by his shed blood, he restored a secure way to enter God's presence and dwell together with him. You can open your eyes. Well, the reality is, even as we've imagined those things, we don't have to imagine the heavenly response because John's vision gave us a glimpse into what exactly heaven thinks of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. And this isn't exactly at the moment of the crucifixion, but you get the picture. So it says in Revelation 5, starting in verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to take the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, 
with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of all the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So in response to seeing the lamb who was slain, all of heaven cries out, you are worthy. So now we can see that from Genesis to Revelation and from Adam to Christ, the theme of redemption by the blood sacrifice of an innocent substitute is on full display. As Sam Storm says, there is no greater or more eternally important theme in all of Scripture than that of the shed blood of the sacrificial substitute. Hear me on this. The crucifixion of Christ was not an accident nor a tragedy. No. Indeed, it was the culmination of all creation. God's plan from the beginning to dwell with men by redeeming a people for himself with his own blood. Through the completion of this work, he has restored Eden to us, which is to say that if we are in Christ, we are invited into his dwelling place, even into his very presence. That is precisely the message of this passage in Hebrews 9, that our true priest, not a shadow, offered an eternal sacrifice, not a temporary one, in the heavenly temple, not a model replica. Friends, this is the good news. In fact, this news sounds too good to be true. How do we experience this restored Eden, this heaven on earth? What's the catch? Well, it turns out there is always a catch. First, we must repent and believe. We may easily look around at others and think we're not so bad as them. We're good people. We don't need atonement. But the reality is that we aren't being compared to one another, but rather to God's glorious holiness. One of the most terrifying realities of the final judgment for the unredeemed is that it will be the first time they fully experience the unfiltered glory of God and at the same time finally understand the horrific magnitude of their own sin. In addition, just as each sinner was required to bring their own offering to sacrifice, so too we must individually reject our own ability to earn God's forgiveness and favor by our works. Christ's sacrifice does not impute to us unless we accept it, humbly admitting that our sins necessitated his death and that our own sacrifices are paltry and insufficient to redeem our souls. This means that we must submit ourselves to him in an act of sincere repentance, turning from our old lives of sin and instead living to honor him. Second, we are commanded to publicly announce our loyalty to Christ through baptism. Baptism symbolizes our death 
to sin and resurrection to victory in Christ. If you have placed your faith in Christ for the redemption of your soul, this is not optional. As it's written in Romans 6, starting in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This also means that in Christ, we live with victory over death and freedom from sin. Amen. Third, we must walk in the Spirit as fellow heirs with Christ. We see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is what Hebrews 9 is talking about, talking about the will and a will being enacted. We are heirs with Christ. So forth, our gratitude for this redemption that Christ has purchased on our behalf must drive us to proclaim the good news. We see this in 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who, is in, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Finally, we have hope for a new Jerusalem, a final and eternal restoration of humanity to dwell in God's presence. As we read in Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city. The temple is temporary. For its God is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So I want to invite the response team up. Really, all of this passage in Hebrews is trying to distill down that whole message from Genesis to Revelation that God created man to dwell with him and that because of our sin, he gave himself up for us as a sacrifice on our behalf so that we could be restored to his presence to dwell with him. So as we respond, there's a handful of ways that this might apply to you. So I'd like to read a couple of questions that you might think about. Do you need to recognize your own sin, repent of it, and accept the eternal offering of substitutionary atonement through Jesus as your priest and sacrifice? Do you need to publicly give your allegiance and loyalty to Christ through baptism? Do you need to allow the Holy Spirit to lead you instead of living in the flesh? Do you experience deep gratitude for Christ's sacrifice on your behalf? Does it lead you to share the good news with others? Do you treasure the presence of God in your life and desire to dwell with him every day? So again, I would just encourage you to think about those questions, ask God what he's revealing to you, what steps of obedience you need to take walking away, James says we don't want to be like someone who looks at a mirror and walks away and forgets what we look like. But we need to do what it says to be changed. So we're going to take communion. We're going to worship together. There's an opportunity to give. So consider these things as we do that together. Let me close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus as our atoning sacrifice for the redemption that he purchased by his blood. Lord, we thank you that it is finished, that we didn't have to bring sheep with us today. We don't have to wonder if your atonement is sufficient. But Lord, we can live in confidence knowing that you have made one sacrifice for all time on our behalf. Lord, I ask that that knowledge would change us, that we would live differently because we know those things to be true. Father, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.